Let's pray that God would help us to reflect on those passages. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do pray for your work of your spirit this morning uh, through the pages of scripture and in our hearts. Help us to understand what we need to believe and help us to rely on it and live in the light of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes things in life don't go as expected. Consider the lot of the six-foot dark-haired youth of approximately 20 years of age who in 1978 failed to successfully mug a five-foot flat 74-year-old grandmother in the cloisters of Chichester Cathedral in England. Apparently when the youth sprang upon a Mrs Ethel West, the result should have been a foregone conclusion. Surprisingly, however, Mrs West grabbed the mugger's wrist and he cried out with words to the effect of, oh gosh, oh no, stop. <laughs> Encouraged, Mrs West then put him in an arm lock. The hapless youth cried with words to the effect of, oh no, oh my goodness, and ran away. If I hadn't been carrying my shopping, I would really have put him on his back, said Mrs West, who apparently took a course in judo when younger and practised her throws on her husband. <laughs> uh, sometimes things don't go as expected in a positive way, you know. Sometimes you do manage to fight off that mugger with your judo as a 74-year-old grandmother. Or perhaps more commonly, sometimes we do get that dream job. Or suddenly, sometimes, she says yes to our great surprise. Or suddenly, sometimes, snails actually don't destroy our vegetable patch. Unexpected in a positive way. But often, the not as expected is a negative not as expected. You know, we may unexpectedly lose our job, or a child gets a serious illness, or an important relationship breaks down all of which can send our lives in unwanted and upsetting directions. And if we're Christians when things don't go as expected in a negative way, what do we, what do, we do with that? What happens to our faith? What happens to our trust in God? Well, about 30 years ago, there was a famous Christian author by the name of Philip Yancey who wrote a number of very well-known books, one of which was called Disappointment with God. And he wrote it to address, I guess, Christians who had just this issue. He writes, I found that for many people there is a large gap between what they expect from their Christian faith and what they actually experience. Interesting. It's a good book. I read it. Now, in today's passage, John the Baptist, it seems, experienced something a little bit like that. He was disappointed, it seems, with Jesus. Jesus responds, though, and so we're going to see what we can learn from Jesus' response to John the Baptist should we find ourselves in the situation where we're a little disappointed with God? We're also going to see some other things as well after that in the passage. Now, as Wilf mentioned, we're continuing our Term 1 series in the book of Matthew. We're up to chapter 11. We're looking at verses 1 to 19 today. It's always helpful if you've got your Bible or your device open. And um, today we said that many people are what I've described as dissing Jesus. If you look at the uh, sermon outline, which hopefully you picked up when you, on the way in, you'll see how we're going to do it. But there's a sense of, uh, in this passage, a sense of disappointment with Jesus. There is a dislike of Jesus from some people. And there is displeasure with Jesus from some as well. I'm going to look at the passage in three parts. Firstly, one, verses 1 to 6, looking at John the Baptist's view of Jesus. 
then verses 7 to 15, looking at Jesus' view of John the Baptist, and finally uh, verses 16 to 19, where we're going to see the people's view of Jesus and John the Baptist. So that's where we're going. Let's start with John the Baptist's view of Jesus in verses 1 to 6. The passage opens with Jesus continuing with his Galilean teaching ministry when he gets a message from John the Baptist. Look at verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So are you the one? It's, it's a good question, isn't it? You see, Jesus has been progressively revealing himself to others over these preceding chapters. He's been showing his authority over, over sickness, over death, over nature, to forgive sins, uh, as a teacher, to call people to follow him, etc., etc. And it's a good question for people to ask, who is Jesus? Is he the one? And this is the very question which John is asking. So it's a good one. But it's actually also a surprising question when you consider the question comes from John the Baptist. Now, why is it surprising that John the Baptist might be asking of Jesus, are you the one? Well, um, back in chapter 3 of Matthew, we've seen John the Baptist, you know, when he, before he was imprisoned, preaching and teaching and baptising people. And one of the things he says back in chapter 3 is, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then, not long after this, when Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptised by John the Baptist, John says, I need to be baptised by you and you come to me. You see, it seems that John the Baptist at this point recognises that Jesus is the one who he has been preparing the way for. So... Why the doubts now? Why is he now asking of Jesus, are you the one? Well, let's uh, put ourselves in John's shoes for a moment. So John's in prison and he might sort of think, sure, all this preaching and all this healing is great stuff, but where's the judgment? Where's the burning up of the chaff with unquenchable fire, which he'd spoken about back in chapter 3? There are Old Testament texts which speak about the one to come as one who would display vengeance and divine retribution. I mean, where's the vengeance and the divine retribution? And there was a quite a popular Jewish text at the time. It wasn't in, it's not in the Bible, it's not in the Old Testament, it's just a general bit of Jewish writing, which was referred to as the Psalms of Solomon. And it says of the Messiah in that, that he will destroy the unrighteous rulers, purging Jerusalem from Gentiles. So, given the light of that, why has Jesus been going around saying things like blessed are the merciful and blessed are the peacemakers? I mean, what's, what's the deal there, he would have been thinking. And then secondly, John is supposed to be on Jesus' side, isn't he? He's sort of prepared the way for him. What's John doing? Why is he being left to languish in prison while Jesus just sort of you know, goes around the countryside? He might be thinking, look, Jesus, if you're the one, let me out of this prison. Let's get out and let's get this kingdom happening. He may have been thinking along those lines. So you can sort of get his confusion. Jesus responds as follows in verses 4 and 5. He says, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. 
Now, this response is significant and helpful in a number of respects. Firstly, there are his mighty works, his healings, his, his, his miracles. I mean, no one had ever done before the sorts of things that Jesus was doing. Either he is divine or he's definitely divinely empowered. And secondly, Jesus' response, though, picks up on a number of Old Testament prophetic texts about the one who was to come. And these are found in Isaiah, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 are good examples. Isaiah 35 was, was read for us a little while earlier. Let me remind you a bit of what Isaiah 35 says, uh, speaking well into the future about the one who was to come. Be strong, do not fear, your God will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf be stopped, unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. See, Jesus is clearly saying, I'm the one who is fulfilling those passages, Isaiah 35 and, and 61. But those passages might also help you appreciate a bit of John's confusion. Because James, Jesus seems to be fulfilling all the healing stuff, all the good news stuff. But where's the vengeance and the divine retribution and judgment aspects? It seems that the blessing is here but the judgment isn't. Now, of course, what Jesus hasn't really unpacked yet for people and what John doesn't know is that, to put it generally in a manner of speaking, many of the blessings are here now with Jesus' first coming, but the judgment aspects will mainly take place at Jesus' second coming with his return. See, Jesus is going to come you know, twice. Firstly, as he has, as we read about here, but secondly, in the future, when he comes back to wind up history. And so John wouldn't have realised that at the time, uh, so he is confused. So what Jesus is doing is not what John expected, but can I suggest, as I sometimes say, maybe not what we expected, but it's better than what John would have expected. Now, why would I say it's better than what John would have expected? Well, it's because the delay in judgement is giving people time to repent, to turn and become followers of Jesus. See, think about all the people who were alive at the time Jesus was speaking who were sort of rejecting Jesus, but who in the next 10 or 20 years were going to repent and become followers of Jesus. If judgment had come then, those people wouldn't have had the opportunity to repent. And judgment has been delayed in effect for 2,000 years at least, which has given us time to be born and, and to repent. And so the delay is better than expected. So the fact that the delay gives people time to repent makes it a good time for me to ask you, have you taken this opportunity to repent? I don't know all of your lives in great detail. Have you reached the point in your life where at some point you've said genuinely to God, please forgive me, I want to follow you? Uh, Jesus has delayed uh, the judgment, giving us time to repent. Why? Because he loves us and he cares about us. But have you taken that step yet? So uh, Jesus' response was not what expected. I've suggested it's better than expected. But uh, Jesus' better than expected wouldn't have been understood by John at the time. He would have only understood in part. So the fact is that then and now, Jesus sometimes disappoints people. You see, the section here, verse 6, finishes with a very strange beatitude, perhaps the strangest of beatitudes. Jesus says in verse 6, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. He seems that he knows that many people are going to struggle with his approach. It seems he knows that some people may be disappointed with his approach. One commentator I read during the week, quite a well-known gentleman by the name of R.T. France, 
said of Jesus' first century Jewish audience that they mightn't have appreciated Jesus' approach particularly. He says, good news to the poor was an offence to the establishment, that's the Jewish establishment, while a mission of relief of suffering and the restoration of sinners would have been at best irrelevant to those who were concerned with national liberation. So if you're in the establishment, if you wanted national liberation from the Romans, Jesus' approach is not really going to thrill you, it's going to disappoint you. And uh, Jesus' ministry and God's way of doing things can disappoint some people today. I wonder whether um, you've been ever disappointed about the way God has worked things out in your life in some areas. Now, look, I confess that there have been times where I've been very disappointed at how some things have turned out. And I suspect that for most people here, at times you've been disappointed at how certain things have unfolded. Sometimes God's methods can confuse us. A few years ago, I read a very, very interesting book called Searching for Allah, Finding Jesus. Some of you may have read it. It's about a guy called Nabil Qureshi, who was a Muslim man who grew up in the United States, who was eventually converted to Christianity. But as he grew up, he was a very keen, sincere Muslim man, very close to his family. He was very concerned with Islamic apologetics, you know, defending the Islamic faith against opposition to it. He'd often have discussions and debates with Christians. In the end, after a number of years and discussions with Christians, he ends up becoming a follower of Jesus, which was no easy decision for him to make, given his faith background and given how close he was to his family, which in the book sounded like a wonderful family, a very loving family. And he knew that it was going to bring grief to his parents if he did. But he does. Uh, he puts Christ first, becomes a follower of Jesus, eventually marries a Christian lady, and they have a daughter. And he becomes an international Christian speaker. So good was he at doing Islamic apologetics that when he becomes a Christian and he sees, like, simply that the shortfall of that, he is a wonderful speaker putting forward the Christian faith to, to, to Muslims. And I mean, wouldn't that be a helpful thing to have today, someone who is really experienced in that area? But then in 2017, at the age of 34, he dies of stomach cancer. Now, when I, I, remember, I remember that happening and I thought, why? Yeah, God, why would you do that? I mean, not only has he got decades with his wife still to go with, with hope, and no doubt decades to help bring his daughter up, but there are obviously decades of really useful, productive Christian ministry he could have done as well. If I was God, I, there is no way I would have had that man dying at 34. I don't know what the point of that was. But we don't know all the situation. We don't know God's wisdom. We only see through a glass now. We'll eventually know all, but we don't know yet. But... In situations when we find ourselves in things like that, let's learn the lesson from John the Baptist, because John the Baptist actually does something very constructive with his doubt. He doesn't just sit there and dwell depressively in his cell. He asks Jesus. He goes to Jesus, or he sends his people to Jesus to say, look, what's the deal? What's going on? Now, what do you do? What do I do? What do we do when doubts and disappointments assail us? Do we stew in our own cells by ourselves? Or do we ask Jesus? We pray to say, what's going on? How do we ask Jesus? Well, we pray to him. We examine his word to see what light that has to shed on the situation. Sometimes we might even speak to wise Christians who can shed some light on it as well. Uh, I think it's good for us to take the lesson of John the Baptist, that when we are disappointed, let's take our questions to Jesus. So, that was John the Baptist's view of Jesus and some insights from that. Uh, more briefly, let's look at the next two parts of the passage now. Firstly, Jesus' view of John the Baptist in verses 7 to 15. And in doing this, we learn not just about John the Baptist, but also more about Jesus. But first, John the Baptist. 
Jesus opens with what is, to my knowledge, the first multiple choice question in recorded history. Don't know whether anyone's before that. This is the first one I know of. Jesus says in verse 7 to the people, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? He gives them then option A, which is a reed swayed by the wind. Now, that's a metaphor. It's basically saying, did you go out to see John, who was a weak person who was easily swayed? Well, no. If you know anything about John, that's the last thing he was. The obvious answer isn't A. So, what did you go out to see, verse 8? Here's option B. A man dressed in fine clothes. Well, for anyone who happens to have been in Sunday school over the years, you know that John didn't wear fine clothes. He wore clothes of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. I mean, there's almost no need for Jesus to answer question B is the incorrect answer, which he does. Then verse 9, what did you go out to see? Here's option C. A prophet. Yes, says Jesus. So John was a prophet. Uh, Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. He explains, verse 10, this is the one about whom it was written, I will, this is a quote from the Old Testament now, I will send my messenger ahead of you and you will prepare, he will prepare your way before you. This is a quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus is identifying John as the one who fulfills Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. John is the messenger who was to prepare the way for the Lord, for God, for the Messiah. So in identifying John as such, Jesus is also identifying himself because he's the one John's preparing the way for. Jesus is in effect saying, I am the one. I am God, the Messiah, the one who was to come, the Lord. Then Jesus gives John an incredible rap. He says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, can you think of a bigger rap to give someone? If I got up to him and said today, Look, everyone, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than Chris Shearman. (laughs) No one. You sort of think, wow, that is a big rap. Sorry, Chris, you know, but I could have chosen anyone. (laughs) Uh, That that is a big rap, isn't it? You know, I mean, what more can you say about someone than that? But then Jesus follows with, but whoever's least in the kingdom is greater than he. Now, I think what's going on here is Jesus is not so much talking about personal worth, but he's talking about one's relationship to the kingdom. Better to be someone who is in the kingdom of God than someone who preceded it and was simply pointing towards it. As one commentator has noted who I read, the contrast is thus not between individuals or their worth, but between eras. John the Baptist was the last of the old covenant era. Jesus brings in the kingdom in the new covenant era, which is by far the superior era and how fortunate are those who are part of that era. Not to say that people from the Old Testament won't be in heaven, that's not a matter. Um, They can be, I believe, Um, but it's a big turning point. Now, what are the big turning points of your lifetime? Now, you know, obviously meeting people and, you know, whatever, but international news things. I think, well, big turning points. I guess 9-11 was a big turning point in world affairs. I think back to 1989 and the fall of the, 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 the wall, the communist wall, etc., and the breaking down of Eastern Europe was a big thing. In the earlier service, some people would have remembered the end of the Second World War. You know, big turning points. And they are big turning points, but that, those turning points are nothing compared to the turning point of what Jesus brought in with the new covenant and the kingdom of God. Nothing compares to that. But... Sadly, yet again, Jesus is dissed again. This time he is disliked by someone, by some. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, this is Jesus speaking, so that would have been, you know, a year or two, um, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence 
and violent people have been raiding it. Basically, he's saying people have been opposing his message of the kingdom. People have been opposing him. And we've seen that already back in chapter 9. Some people have accused Jesus of blasphemy. Some people have, in effect, accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. It's by Beelzebub that he casts out demons, etc., etc. And the opposition to Jesus and his message and his kingdom is going to get greater. They're going to crucify him in the end. And the same is true for his followers. When his followers are following, back in the book of Acts, they're going to be violently opposed by people as well. And Christians have been opposed, disliked, and sometimes violently opposed for the last 2,000 years. And I've often spoken about persecuted Christians around the world. So there is that. Now, finally, let's go to the third point, the people's view of Jesus and John the Baptist in verses 16 to 19. Have you ever seen sulky children? Have you ever seen sulky children? I, I, I struggle to think of any of that myself. Um, you know, you, you say to a child, so we play some hide and seek. No. Nah. Oh, um, we do a bit of painting or something. No. Nah. Oh, would you want to go to the pool for a swim or something? No. Nah. It actually reminds me of that it's song by men at work, but that's another matter. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, no, they, 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 nothing can make them happy. They don't want to do anything. And remember, Jesus was speaking before the Xbox, which would have been the solution to those problems. Uh, but, you know, it can't be made happy, whatever. Jesus then tells an extended metaphor along those lines. Verse 16, to what can I compare this generation, he says? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to the others, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. You know, kids, they don't want to play. They can't be satisfied. They're not, they're not happy. Jesus then explains that this is a metaphor relating to Jesus and John the Baptist. He says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, they can't be happy with John's approach, they can't be happy with Jesus' approach, they're not happy with anyone's approach. Nut, 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 nut. Jesus and John the Baptist here displease some, because there are some who will always find fault with Jesus and with his followers as well. There was a famous 19th century English bishop called Bishop J.C. Ryle and speaking about the 19th century in England, he comments on the following attitude to Christians uh, in his day. He says, whatever we teach and preach they find fault with, whatever be our manner of life they are dissatisfied. Do we tell them of salvation by grace and justification by faith? At once they cry out against our doctrine as licentious and antinomian. Do we tell them of the holiness that the gospel requires? At once they exclaim that we are too strict and precise and over-righteous. Are we cheerful? They accuse us of levity. Are we grave? They call us gloomy and sour. Do we keep aloof from balls and races and plays? This is the 19th century, remember? Yet they denounce us as puritanical, exclusive and narrow-minded. Do we eat and drink and dress like other people and attend to worldly callings and go into society? They sneeringly imply that they can see no difference in us and that those who make no religious profession at all, they are no better than other men. So, um, you know, can't be pleased. And perhaps similar comments could be made about Christians and about Jesus uh, today. But the proof of Jesus' righteousness is in his actions, not in people's opinions. As he says at the end of the chapter in verse 19, or verse passage, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds, which of course it was. Let me conclude. Sometimes, and I focus more on the first part of the passage, sometimes, as was the case with John the Baptist, following Jesus does not go 
as expected. We can sometimes be confused and sometimes we can be disappointed with God. This may be for a number of reasons. We don't get the full story, but also sometimes because our expectations are, can be often based on what we would like rather than what the Bible might teach and might promise. Um, sometimes we can be prone to lapse into thinking that God is going to give us a life of perpetual material and spiritual success. Well, it's, it's not going to be uh, like that. We'll often be disappointed. What does the Bible promise? Well, the Bible promises believers incredible stuff. It promises us forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, adoption into God's family. It promises us Christian fellowship. It promises us um, wisdom. It promises us peace, purpose and power in this life. And in the next life, it promises us eternal life with God and other believers. And it promises us that we will face suffering like everyone else. And it promises us that Christians will face persecution and opposition. So they're the sort of expectations I guess we should have about the things which we know will happen in life. Now at those times when we are confused to how things are working out, could I suggest that I and you should do what John the Baptist did, uh, take our questions and our confusions to Jesus and pray that he would help us to develop biblical expectations about what we can expect in this life. So the big idea from this passage I would suggest is have scripture shape your expectations. Go to Jesus and have him shape our expectations. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' very incisive teaching as always. And Lord, as we contemplate our lives and the things which happen, help us to take our questions and confusions to you. And Lord, help us to be, have our expectations shaped by your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.